Hello and welcome to the first episode of something brand new and what we're calling the Essential Adventure Sport Podcast. Our main aim is to shed some light on the world of adventure sports, be that top tips and best practices for coaches, leaders and guides, inspiring expeditions or just a chat with one of the many interesting people who work and play in the outdoors. We really welcome interactions and discussions, so if you have an idea of a subject that you'd like to be covered or you'd like to contribute to the show, then please drop us a message. So sit back and enjoy today's show. Welcome, chaps, to our very first uh, official podcast. Um, I think there's been uh, there's been musings that we might call it the Essential Adventure Sports Podcast. I kind of like the sound of that one. Um, but uh, it'd be really good if we could get some introductions from you both because we're here to talk about leadership tonight and and what it is. Um, so let's let the folks at home know exactly why you're on the other end of the microphone. Yeah, hi there, everybody. Uh, so my name's Adam. I live in North Wales. Um, and I've been uh, in the outdoors or working in the outdoors all my life. Um, I currently work at Placer Bedding, which is the National Outdoor Centre in Kapilkurig. Uh, and I also do a lot of sort of freelance training assessment. Um, and I'm going to say worldwide. Uh, no, I've definitely sort of worked in a, a few continents training and assessing British canoeing courses. Um, but I'm also uh, a mountaineer and climber as well at heart. So I train and assess mountaineering and climbing awards. Um, as well as British Canoeing Awards. From a British Canoeing perspective, I am a sea paddler, a whitewater kayaker, and a canoeist, and I hold training and assessing qualifications in those three disciplines. Great. So you've got a, a, a depth and breadth of experience, really, across these subjects, and it's great to know that you're also working in the, in the, in, in the mountains and climbing as well. So um, I guess a lot, a lot of the things we'll talk about tonight the leadership elements we'll talk about tonight are really transferable across both land and water-based disciplines. So um, it's great to have you along, Adam. So thanks for joining us. Next, we've got Nick, and Nick is the uh, Nick's the co-host of this of this podcast, and you'll be hearing a lot from him in the uh, in the coming months and hopefully years. Um, and he's the he's the other half of of Kike Essentials. He's my partner in crime. So Nick, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself? Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. You've you've covered the uh, the key elements there. Um, I'm talking to you from my home in Menai Bridge, where we're still under Welsh lockdown, and um, my professional coaching life is primarily in sea kayaking these days. I live on the island of Anglesey, so I'm typically meeting my clients on the west coast, and we're heading out into the tide races and the headlands of uh, of, of Anglesey. Um, I work as a British canoeing coach, which means I'm involved with coach and leader assessments in moderate and advanced waters, and uh, that's that's the uh, that's the primary area of my working life these days. I've got a coaching background in whitewater kayaking, and there was a time in my life when I was much more actively involved with coach and leader award assessments in in, in that particular discipline, and I'm I'm really interested in this evening's. Uh, this evening's leadership subject, um, not least because in my in my free time, I have a passion for going in the mountains, and uh, I like running in the hills. Uh, I do a bit of climbing. I want to get the chance. I like to go skiing as well, and I've often taken a lot of um, really valuable experiences from my recreational passion, which has helped me to apply some good practices in my working life. So there you go. That's me. 
Brilliant, great. So as we said at the start, this this particular podcast is all about leadership. It's about what it is, how we develop it. And for those of you who've got aspirations to gain leadership awards, maybe some of the top tips that are going to help you get through the, the training, that consolidation and gain of experience, and then coming on to assessment. So hopefully we're going to cover those subjects throughout the course of this podcast. So I guess as a, as a starter question, and either one of you can jump in for this, um, what what would you describe leadership as actually being? You know, what what what, what is it? Okay, so I um, uh, I had an idea that you might ask us that question, and I uh, I said to myself, I wonder what the internet tells me about leadership. I've got some ideas of my own, but I, I wonder what the uh, I wonder what the World Wide Web would have to say about it. And so I uh, I did what most of us do these days. I googled it, and apparently leadership apparently. Um, leadership is motivating a group of people to act towards achieving a common goal. And I thought about that, and I thought, I quite like that, because motivation's in there. We're, we're infusing and empowering people to, uh, to work together towards a common objective. And it sounds like a good starting point. And then I thought, well, how does that apply to my, my everyday working life? And I thought, well, what is it that I'm trying to do? And I think what I'm trying to do is take into account individual differences between group members, you know, what experience they've got, what confidence they've got, where their motivations lie. And I've also got to take into account the environment that we're moving through. It's dynamic, it's changeable, and we're going sea kayaking. So I've got to think about the various factors that might influence the possible outcomes. And if I put those two together, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm working well with the environment and the people, then there's various leadership strategies that I could follow that would help us to get to where we want to be. Yeah, that's interesting, Nick. I, I uh, did a similar thing. I, I think about it before I Googled it, I must admit. And I was thinking it's got to be something to do with getting through the environment, but I wasn't sure in what kind of capacity. And it's obviously about the people, the journey. So, um, yeah, it's interesting when, when I Googled it as well, I came up with this sort of similar thing and I thought, and it hits yeah. a nail on the head. It's it's pretty, pretty hit. You know, pretty, pretty there, isn't it? And do you notice, Adam? Do you notice a lot of similarities? Because you obviously train and assess and and work alongside people who, like we said before, work in the mountains, work on the on the crags, and then you've also got the you know the paddle sport side of things. Do you see a lot of transferability of of those skills across those disciplines? Yeah, massively. So I think there's, there's a huge amount of transferability. I think the probably the caveat. Is probably in that last quote of towards a common goal, and often people probably get lost and they perhaps don't know what that common goal is, and so people think, no, maybe in a in a mountain environment, oh, I've I've got to get from this point to this point, you know, so therefore my goal is navigation, but actually they forget that there's somebody behind them and they're tripping over a barbed wire fence or whatever. So it's looking after people to get to point B, not just getting to point B. Um, so sometimes I find myself perhaps paraphrasing or, or or setting the scene and using a framework to get people to understand what the shared goal is we're trying to get to on that given leg or that given river, that given sequence. I think that's a really good point, Adam. And um, yeah, that speaks to my uh, work in life as well. I know you overlap into that world and you do a lot of CCAC leading, whereas when I go in the mountains, it's different for me. Um, but I completely agree that there's that there are commonalities from one discipline one adventure sport one environment to another 
and that point you just made about uh, getting focused on one element. Um, you use navigation as an example, and, and you could call that like a task orientation where the focus is on getting the job done. And um, I often remind myself when I'm with my clients on the sea that the objective is not to get to a particular destination, but it's for us to make our way in that direction together, taking into account everybody's needs. And it sounds a bit woolly, but of course, if we get there, then we really have achieved the objective. But if we leave people behind, either literally or psychologically, then we're absolutely not achieving our leadership objectives. So thank you for raising that. Yeah, I love that. And kind of the next sort of question I was thinking of asking meets really closely with that, which is, so what makes a good leader um, in any environment? So it could be the mountains, it could be on the rivers, out, out, out on the sea. What are the sort of characteristics that we often see? Find it easily, you'd sell a thousand books. Um, I just don't. There's a variety of things, but I would say it's kind of all encompassed about being holistically just a nice person and having a personality. You know, we've all got our horror stories, I'm sure, of these tales of awful assessors and all this sort of carry on. But, you know, I find when people are at ease, and I can have an influence on that as an assessor, but also just bigger picture leadership when I'm in a sort of working in a guiding role. If people feel happy and at ease, then I get the best out of people. Um, so I would say that's probably one of the big characteristics to being a good good leader. Yeah, good point, Adam. And uh, I don't know, Matt, is it is it is it too early to? It's funny you should should mention the selling of a thousand books, Adam. Is it is it too early to announce the launch of essential publications? Um, Watch this space. Watch this space. Um, no, seriously. Um, I uh, I think the 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 leading that we each do um, takes us into potentially hazardous environments. Let Let's just agree that there's a that there's a risk uh, inherent in in mountaineering and paddle sport activities, and it's the management of that risk that is never very far away from our thoughts. And of course, they're practical activities because if you're going to go climbing with a client, well, you've, you've got to go climb, climbing. By definition, you're going to take part in the activity. And whatever else is happening when I'm afloat with my groups, I am also kayaking. So I can't really avoid the need for me to be comfortable and knowledgeable in the environment in which I'm... I'm going to be leading others. And I know there are many other requirements, but I thought if we're going to talk about leadership this evening, I at least want to acknowledge that um, the ability to feel comfortable and at home in the environment in which you've chosen to be responsible for other people's safety is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely, Nick, I agree. Um, and I think that's probably, when, I, when if we go to a training and assessing of personnel, uh, in that kind of role it's often the personal skills that let that leadership down because they don't feel confident to not put their neck on the line but to go around the corner because they perhaps can't deal with those conditions and and that's why their leadership is often jeopardized but I know we're probably going off a little bit off task there Matt I apologize but no it's 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 perfect because it it, it rings in with some of the conversations I was having today with some of our members and they were asking about um one particular member asked me if if I ever um, worry about my own 
um, performance and whether I'm going to be okay when I'm looking after and, and leading groups. And I thought that was a brilliant question to ask. And I guess there have been there have been moments where I've thought, all right, okay, this is this has got quite a high level of consequence here. So you know, let's not let's not mess this up personally because I've got to look after the group. But I think if we get into um, we get into situations and conditions where we're thinking we're actually looking after ourselves well then we're neglecting the job aren't we we need to make sure that we're comfortable enough to be able to to look after the people who are with us and maybe we've made some bad decisions before and that have led to us being in a place where, where we're not comfortable ourselves so um no it's a really it's tangent but it's a really um i think it's a really valuable tangent for people out there who are looking to get into leadership or to develop their leadership stuff sorry matt we'll probably come into this at some point tonight but um Picking the right venue, using venue in a loose term, but knowing where to go is probably one of the biggest kind of cruxes to getting leadership right for people. I would say, and it's it's you can it's noticeable when people when leadership isn't going well for people, it's often because they're in the wrong place, um, and that often starts at that planning or that first step. You know, do I when I get to the beach, do I even get on? Kind of approach. And I suppose that that feeds into the stuff you would, but you've both mentioned, which is that interaction with the people and having those conversations at the start of the day and finding out what their wants and needs are and then matching, matching all those things as best we can through the dialogue. Cause obviously some people over egg their ability or underplay their ability. So we've got to kind of take everything on face value, haven't we? And then picking, picking appropriate venues. Yeah. That makes, makes total sense, Adam. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Matt. Um, your question, what makes a good leader, took us into observations about the environment and our own personal abilities. Um, earlier, we were talking about the uh, the need to be mindful of the people in our care, and yeah, just to just to um, uh, to reiterate what you were saying a moment ago, there, um, I, I try and be aware of the different group members needs and their motivations and what their goals are for the day they might be very well aligned or they might be different in some important ways and um, I think the people that I admire as really good leaders they're very able to do that and it seems to be rooted in emotional intelligence and good communication skills and you can see it from a distance when a group has got good cohesion and they've got good lines of communication between each other. And a lot of that is a result of the atmosphere that's created by a leader throughout the day. Do you think those those things you're talking about are things that people can learn and develop, or are they kind of natural traits that people have? Um, in my view, at least, um, absolutely. I think that the leadership skills are entirely learnable they place demands on us but I don't subscribe to the view that leaders are born because if that was the case we could conduct some form of um, some form of online assessment and figure out who, who all our natural leaders were and then award them the, the relevant qualifications um, in, in my working life which started in the outdoors at the age of 18 I, I can recall vividly days that I spent with clients uh, where the, the, the understanding and the tools and the abilities that I had to, to lead them were exceptionally limited 
And that's understandable because I was 18 years old. I had very little life experience and I had very little background in the sports that I was being given responsibility in. Um, so clearly I had the opportunity to develop my leadership skills as I gained experience. But of course that demanded um, some trial and error, some mistakes, and it definitely required reflection on the things that had worked well for me. Uh, all my working life, I've tried to reflect on experiences that I've had that could be useful for the future. Good things, bad things, great days, near misses, anything that can then feed into leadership tactics and strategies that I can use in the future. So I completely believe that they are learnable skills. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you, Nick. No, I was, when Matt asked that question, I was thinking, well, are some things always learnable? And I, what I mean by that is we, <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but we will come across people that perhaps don't have that emotional intelligence. Um, but it's interesting you pointed out that it's that reflective practice that happens afterwards that changes that persona in people. I think, you know, I've definitely been times where I've gone into work or into my mode I've perhaps been a little bit tired and not kind of quite been with it and I don't deliver as good a day as say when I'm really really on the money and and kind of um, aware of what's going on and so that kind of can we learn emotional intelligence can we learn how to be a good person yes we can but I think we've got to be reflective to that and also maybe um, point be pointed in that right direction as well and you know it's very easy yeah. for some people to just kind of think oh well I didn't I didn't do that task because I didn't go from point A to point B but actually it's the way it's phrased or it's the way they didn't pull a group together first before getting to point A point B and sometimes um, I've seen assessors when I'm when I'm training and assessing assessors you you see assessors thinking it's all about that transaction from point A to point B but actually they haven't phrased it's the way you suggested we go from point A to point B does that make sense when I'm talking riddles that's a good answer yeah um since we're discussing whether leadership skills can be learnable and thinking about what you've just said, Adam, um, I guess it's it's only fair to acknowledge that you know we've all got we've all got um, natural strengths. We've all got learned behaviours that enhance our abilities to do things. They might not have come naturally, but we might have learned them through observing others and through reflecting on our own practice. And we've all got allowable weaknesses that are just a reflection of who we are. And I reckon I've got a few traits that I would like to keep away from my leadership practice. Um, however, when pressures intervene, you know, you mentioned tiredness, Adam, um, or if you're getting overwhelmed with situational demands, um, it can be that those traits emerge and they can either be positive or negative to the, to, to the job at hand. And I've seen that when I've worked as an assessor, when people get a bit overloaded in situations where there's a lot of quite complex decisions to make. Some people's natural traits and natural strengths work to their favor in that environment. And other people have to find the answer through the learned behaviors that they've gained over time. And I think I'm, I'm a mix of both. Um, I probably believe that I've got a lot of learned behaviors um, and I've got a few things that I try not to inter, interfere with my, my leadership practice, um, if I could put it that way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'd agree, definitely. Yeah, it's, that rings true with me for sure. I guess if we're talking about good leaders being um, you know, within the outdoor context and being good humans and and interacting well and doing all those things, then if the if the word human means that we're we're prone to making some mistakes and we're prone to bringing some you know bad days, not necessarily that are going to result in a in a catastrophe, but that we might not feel like we want to be there and and we might not bring our a game as you as you mentioned before adam um but still keeping those some of those learned behaviors may might help with those safety frameworks that we operate in possibly i was gonna say it's it's also knowing when to spot those behaviors as well so you know yes we make a mistake you might make two but it's it's knowing how to get out of that mistake trait Know, that I call the series of lemons all stacking up against you. It's knowing how to break that mold. So if something isn't going well, get your group together, ask them why. If they're not telling you, find out in a different way to find out how we can kind of change this this style of leadership. Um, you know, because I've definitely had days where I've gone, oh, I'm feeling like I'm struggling here and I, I change my tact altogether or I ask a series of questions or I move location. All, all These are all kind of tools I use to reset the bar basically and once i do that often the group will get on board with me or or i've seen people get on board as well and, and is that because you've been you've actively reflected on your pre because those things can't just be off the cuff decisions they must be based on some you know previous experiences or or, or are they off the cuff decisions uh i would say more nowadays are off the cuff but it must be learned and i've just got used to doing it that way yeah, I think in the past I've definitely thought right. I've got to, I've got to change this. How do I change it? Whereas now I, I naturally find myself going, oh, I've just changed tack. I didn't really think about that. But I think that's as you move through into this kind of the, the the number of hours you do this job for, you suddenly start to find those shortcuts. Do you think then you can, you know, you as an individual, you, you both of you, uh, are you still developing your own leadership, or are you the are you are you the leader now that you always want to be, or are you constantly reframing and developing and evolving? always changing always as soon as i get stale i'll go backwards i won't yeah you've got to keep changing does, does it make a difference that you work in different domains adam so you you know you could be in, in a typical week you could be in the mountains on a on a scramble one day you could be leading a, a rock climbing session the next day you could be on a sea or the river the next day and you have to put different hats on or or do you find it easy to to transfer between those things I think if we go back to our start of our questions, which is what what is good leadership, um, I don't think the the training is important. Having having the personal skills is important, but it's about working with people, the people skills. So those different days I do different things, I'm still working with people, and that's that's what I see it. I don't see it as oh I've I've got to I've got to lead in a in a mountaineering sense today. I've got to lead in a in a kayaking sense tomorrow. I'm I'm working with people. I know, I know you're quite a reflective person, Nick, and you probably I know you think a lot about you know your your personal practice. So you know where would you say you are? Are you still a, a developing leader, even though you've been doing it for such a long time? Um, well, of course I'm going to say yes, um, but I better <laughs> I, I better qualify that answer, haven't I? Um, yeah, I was I was just thinking there that it's been about. 30 plus years oh my word it's nearly 35 years since i first took responsibility for a group of people in the outdoors um and the notion that i might have learned it all is a very dangerous thought 
uh, I really gotta I really gotta resist that that feeling. But you know what? I find it very easy to resist because I'm continually encountering novel situations. And you know that I do most of my work on the sea where I've spent a great deal of my work in life. And I've got to know the coastal environment pretty well in different ways. So frequently there's little that surprises me when I go out into a sea kayaking environment. Um, but I'm always going out with a group of paddlers and it, the people are always different and the way people respond to certain challenges continues to absorb me and surprise me and I think that much of my learning takes place when I focus on the human interactions between me and the group and between other group members that's where I place an awful lot of my attention these days um, but of course it's it's easier for me to do that because I I know the coastal sea kayaking environment pretty well. I notice when I go into the mountains, and as much as I've developed some experience in, in the mountains over the years, um, occasionally I get a bit absorbed by the demands of the activity. So I find that my focus is going on to what I'm doing. And if I'm with a group of friends, I'm sometimes less able to focus on them because of what I'm trying to achieve in that moment. Um, it's a little easier for me to do that in sea kayaking. And if I take an example that Adam and I shared within the last year, when we go whitewater kayaking together, I get pretty absorbed by the demands of the environment. And it's probably only when I'm sitting in the eddy that I can pay attention to my fellow group members and see how they're getting on. So there you go. There's there's an everyday. There's a concrete example that you and I have shared, Adam. It rings with me, Nick, and I, I think um, you know that this whole kind of situation with adventure sports never stopping. You no, know, that they they do stop. They pause. They slow down at times throughout the day. I think um, yeah, you you probably not see me skiing. You don't want to, but um, that's the same for me with skiing. You no, know, I, I I love skiing, but I definitely have to think about what I'm doing when I'm stood still. It's often quite hard to do so in the moment. And um, when I'm when I'm sort of leading it for, as a day job, you know, the, the natural pauses throughout the day, and often I will find myself asking a set of questions. I already know the answer. I know where 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 I'm going to perhaps lead the conversation. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking about the next stage. I'm almost trying to try and do two things at once. So they're having you've both described experiences there where maybe it's not your you know, your primary sport or, or, you know, it's not where you've got your skill base fully at. And does that help give you some empathy? Because you deliver a, a lot of training assessment courses, especially assessment courses across a lot of different areas. Does, does that help with your empathy towards the candidates and, and, and how they operate or or not? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'm trying to think of you know, a more, more detailed, detailed answer to that, but... Um, yeah, yeah, having empathy, empathy is always there, there. and you always, always, you know, I always think, well, it's, it's never, never too many years ago since I laughed in an assessment, and I, I like to think that's, that's, that's going to continue. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, having empathy is important, I think you can also find that it goes the other way, and you sometimes get frustrated that people aren't making decisions, because you go, well, I would have sorted it out really quickly, why, why, are they, why are they taking so long to do this? Um, and you just have to probably hide that, that trait, <laughs> and, and let them get on with it. 
but just thinking back to those times when you're skiing or Nick talked about his whitewater kayaking, um, when you go, right, yeah, they're making those slower decisions or they're getting focused in on the task rather than on the group. And actually, you know what? I, I do that when I'm in a different a different area of adventure sport, for example. Uh, obviously, they've got to fall within the criteria of the award and they've got to meet all those things. But I guess if we're coming back to this human element, then it must get frustrating but then you also have to remind yourself these are these guys are super new to this in comparison to where i'm at right now in my kind of you know coaching and leadership career yeah one of, one of our jobs i guess is you know with a training or an assessing head on is is getting the message across to people is how long is okay so if you ask me to relocate on a navigation leg or take a group through a particular rocky rock garden or um run a rapid you know if somebody's taking three hours to process whether it's appropriate or not they're clearly not at the standard if they're taking an hour this no is that appropriate or not no that probably not but um you know it's all about trying to kind of purvey that message of or convey that message of how long is appropriate how long isn't and um you know as we do it for years and years you get fast at making those decisions almost so they're kind of you you you, Often the decisions are made before you've even got to the task, as Nick says, because he knows the coastline so well, or you know what's coming up around the corner, um, or you can predict what's around the corner if you've never been there before. Um, and therefore, I would say that, yeah, you just get used to predicting. Yeah. Um, and now I'm thinking about decision-making, which I suspect we'll discuss in another podcast, Matt. Um, Adam, you've just... You've just uh, described some decision-making challenges that your candidates can face and I equally can observe people on assessments getting a little bit overwhelmed by the need to process uh, multiple sources of information and make quite complex decisions. Um, I'm I'm keen for this not to become a discussion on decision-making however However, I think that when I'm in situations that, in which I don't spend every day, um, there, are, there are two elements that I think help me greatly. So if you and I go whitewater kayaking together and I've got to make some decisions about how we're going to get down a particular rapid, if I can see there's a specific hazard in one side of the rapid, I'll, I'll quickly sift that information, I'll absorb it, and I'll, I'll choose a route that keeps me away from that hazard so i no longer have to give processing power to that i've dealt with it i can turn i can turn away from it in my thoughts and i can start to pay attention to the rest of the decision so i think that we get quite good at sifting and recognizing relevant versus less relevant cues and how to structure decisions so that we simplify and remove some of the complexity and the other thing that I think that, that we do, which I really like to see um, my assessment candidates do, is to recognize that we're not necessarily trying to find a perfect solution to every situation. We do a thing that psychologists call satisficing, where we come up with a range of possible solutions and we choose one that will suffice in the moment. It might be quite close to perfection, but on a lot of occasions it's not. But it doesn't stop us making the decision. We say, that will do, it's good enough, it's the best available option, I'm going to go for it. 
we commit to a positive plan and as a consequence the group feel more confident and frequently good things happen as a result yeah i yeah i, I, like, I like that concept of sifting i find myself doing that and if we take a shared location out of, let's say perry mauer i will often think if i'm in a working context well it's the you know that it's the chicken shoot or it's the in between the fangs you know the out the outer race is always there but i'm probably not going to go there and it's the curveball days that catch me out where i'm perhaps working with somebody who's a little bit keen and they want to go there and they try to lead the group in that direction or i'm out with my mates and one of them wants to go there and i'm going well that feels a bit too big for me i'm not really sure about that today um and so how i how i process or how i sift is easy when i'm in a working context and i'm leading but um, how I hand over those reins to people when we're in a peer situation or when I'm being an assessor and let somebody have the reins is an interesting one, I think, that um, is, is tricky. I remember years ago I was on a, on a river and somebody said to me, your job as an assessor is really easy, isn't it? Because uh, all you do is just follow people down the river. You don't have to go out front. And um, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. And then the following rapid, this said individual um, went down the rapid, capsized, had a little bit of a jumble sale and lost all their kit and boat and I came tumbling down after collecting all the pieces and I went yeah it's a pretty easy job and you know it re re reminds me every time whenever I'm on that rapid of actually it is easy being an assessor and, and, and um, assessing leadership when it's going well but um, when it's going badly then it's obviously a different different kettle of fish and it, you know it, it is definitely something we're going to touch on in in future podcasts and I guess that's the difference between someone who's like yourselves who have who have done lots and experienced a lots of Nick used the phrase novel novel situations before and he's he's experienced lots of those therefore he's got a a bigger a bigger library a bigger database of of things going on and I guess that's the challenge isn't it for for newer leaders is that maybe their their library or their database is a is a little bit smaller um so it might we we might look at it and go oh you've got all these options but maybe at that moment in their development they're not quite seeing all them options like the matrix they're not quite seeing everything that's available to them um so and i and I, get, I i know i've been involved in assessments with both you guys and i know that you're not the sort of assessors who are um it's it's behind a set of sunglasses with a little notepad and pen and and the the candidate gets nothing out of it i know that within the the boundaries of the assessment if you can help support them and, and give them something that's going to I mean they take away something from the assessment and it could be one of those little additions to their database um that doesn't affect the assessment decision but you know they they go away with a little bit more information then that's can only be a good thing i guess for them can't it yeah and it's great when that happens um uh, i found myself thinking about the concept of growth mindsets versus fixed mindsets and i learned or I acknowledged many years ago that I'd better have a growth mindset because I was nowhere near knowing enough about what it was that I was trying to do in life. And I think that every day is a school day and I'll come up with some other cliches in a minute to support my argument. Um, but yeah, yeah, in an assessment environment, regardless of outcome, if we can find a way to reveal a moment of learning, like a teachable moment, to a candidate who had a, a notion of, of what was happening in that moment, but we could enhance it through our experience. Well, that's, a, that's an equally important role for an assessor. The challenge is to find the moment.
Brilliant. Yeah. And, and I, I know I know you both do that really well. I, I've had experiences of, of the opposite of that where I've come away from an assessment feeling like it's been the worst experience in my life. And I think I, I've taken that on board and gone, right, I don't want to be that that assessor. I want to make sure people feel, again, it comes back to this repeated phrase of it being a human element. I want people to to feel, put them at ease, make them feel relaxed because they're only going to do deliver their best performance when they when they feel relaxed, aren't they? Um, so how do you guys keep yourselves, you know, current then, you know, how are you, what sort of things you get up to that mean that you can go out on a, on a, on a weekend and you can, can see a group of candidates and say, right, you're doing the right thing. What, what gives you the right Adam to, to be able to do that? I got, um, I got my kind of realization. We were all lucky enough to go to California, um, earlier on in the year and um no I, I definitely hadn't paddled in sort of big pacific swells uh, a great deal i have done in the past but not a great deal and i was kind of reminded of well how do we do this again no this is this is bigger and um i think just being on your money and like, i was definitely nervous for the first couple of days and i was thinking well how do i kind of how do i kind of uh get into this a little bit and i think you just got to remind yourself of, of where you're at you know good personal skills being able to chat to people and you know as soon as you chat to students you go oh actually they're having the same problems as me they're just as scared and they're just as nervous so why don't we have that honest conversation like you know who's feeling nervous who's feeling who doesn't like this who really who's really ramp for it and who wants to go over there you know and before you realize it you've you've got your natural solutions because you you've shared your your common goal back to our, our first question what about what about you nick how are you keeping yourself current after after all these years <laughs> Well, these days, some weekends, I even go as far as the garage. Um, I, uh, I, I, I make a trip to Waitrose, and I do my, my, my daily permitted exercise, which involves a, a constitutional around the housing estate. Um, so that, that's kind of me. Um, no, you know what? I, I have the great good fortune to do a job that I enjoy, that people want me to do, and I live in a beautiful place where the sea kayaking environment we have on Anglesey is exceptional. It, it, it's not, it doesn't have everything, but what it does have is tide races, and I'm in this really happy situation where the clients that I get to paddle with want to go tide race paddling. So there are many, many working days, uh, and I shouldn't admit this in public. It's a good job that it's, it's only the three of us chatting tonight. Um, <laughs> the, there are some days when I'm getting an awful lot out of the paddling experience. I, can, I go to Penrymar a great deal. Most weeks I'm there a couple of times in the week, and sometimes the waves are, are really good fun, and sometimes they're a bit big. And just like you, Adam, I have to make similar decisions. And sometimes my clients, I can see they're ready and they want to get into the big stuff. Well, I've got to go with them, haven't I? At the very least, I've got to sit on the edge and be ready for them. And uh, so in my working life, Matt, I do get plenty of opportunity to test my skills. Um, but that's not enough. Um, I think it's important that I just don't do the things I know. So interestingly, um, the two weekends 
here in North Wales, before we were all told to go indoors, um, I had a paddling weekend when Kelly and I paddled down the middle Conway. And then the next day we paddled down the Ogwen, which was the first time for Kelly. And I'll be honest, I didn't mention it on the day, but it was the first time in a while that I'd done it. And um, I had to display some leadership, Adam, which I wasn't feeling on every rapid. Um, that gave me a bit of a challenge. And thankfully, we had a really successful uh, run down the, down the Ogwen. Um, and that, that keeps me on my toes. And you both know that I like to go rock climbing. And I've always considered myself to be a pretty bad rock climber. Um, but the day before, the day before lockdown, we were at Hollyhead Mountain doing a few routes and I got up an old favourite of mine, a route called Brothers, which apparently is given an HVS grade. And I'll be honest, I got to the top of it and I thought, that went quite well. And you know what? I You were talking about empathy earlier, Matt. I, I, I took a lot from that because I felt a bit of anxiety at the start of the route, had to organise my thoughts, had to pay attention to how I was going to manage my way up it. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I like to play lots of different games. And um, in addition to my working days, I get to go whitewater paddling. I get to go climbing these days. It's interesting. I, I would second that as well. I think one of the, the beauties of living in North Wales is we can do so much on our doorstep normally. Not obviously in lockdown, but at the, normally, no, if I want to do something after work or before work, I can do. I, I, Things have definitely changed for me in the last couple of years. I've got you know, two two young kids. I've got one of one of three and one of one. And finding the time to do stuff for myself is definitely harder. Um, yes. And staying on top of my game is definitely harder. But I still think I do it because I've got the drive to get out and do stuff. And if I didn't live in North Wales, I'd really struggle with that because going to do the Ogwin for a lot of people is a full day commitment. Exactly. I can do it before work. I'm very lucky. I can go to Penryn Mower after work with a golden sunset. You know, it's I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, yeah. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. And, and while going climbing or whitewater paddling doesn't necessarily help my technical sea kayaking skills, it really helps my psychological skills and it helps me with tactics. It, it, it helps me with my decision-making because I'm in a less familiar environment. And I think that by doing different things away from sea kayaking, uh, it enhances what I'm able to do when I get back in my sea, sea kayak. So another thought um, around development, and you know, you guys both um, deliver a lot of assessments, but with different people as well, don't you? You know, from an assessment team point of view, is is that quite a, a useful thing for you to to experience the different? processes that, that other assessors go through yeah i've talked about this a lot today i've had various meetings with british canoeing and, and technical groups that i sort of represent and um those of you that are aware of the changes coming will, will soon understand that we will soon be in a position to um run assessments differently and um i think that will will be interesting to see how we work with different assessors because in the past it's it's been very easy to do that. I'm interested to see how the future looks. Yeah, good point. You know what? I, um, without getting into the detail of what uh, might change with British Canoeing Awards, um, I've often felt very grateful that living here in North Wales, um, I'm surrounded by comparably experienced colleagues who 
I get the chance to work with. Um, I could make a list and it's going to easily run into double figures of people that I get to um, I get to spend time with on the water in a training and, a, and an assessing capacity. And it's one of the reasons I love living here because I get benefit from spending time with those people. I see different approaches. I can find commonalities where we do things in a similar way. And I can work with people who have greater experience in other disciplines and other sports. So we get to talk about that during the day. I've worked with you quite a bit, Adam, and I've worked with Matt a lot. And it's always very revealing to spend time with people and chat with them. And I hope that we can continue to do that. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that we will do because whatever changes take place in the future, um, we can always structure training and assessment courses so that we get to work together. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, it's, it, it's invaluable we do that. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be looking to find ways to do that. And no, I, with my, my um, sort of plaster running head on now, you know, when I first started, I remember Lowell Collins, if you don't know him, check him out. He's a pretty knowledgeable guy, saying to me, if there's one thing you learn about plaster running folks, or Adam talking to me, um, it's that everything happens in the staff room. And um, it's very true, you know, the, the conversations and the chat that happen around a cup of tea and a piece of cake, we all take the mickey out of it, those that know the situation. But um, reflecting on your day or planning for the following day is super important. And I get to do that with my peers that are mates, but they're also colleagues. And um, I'm very lucky. And you know, we would often chat. I know Matt and I and Nick, we all chat on a, probably I'd say on a weekly basis. Um, and I do that with probably, as you said, 10, 15 people on a regular basis. It's brilliant. It's really, really useful. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it's often something you say at the end of, the end of courses isn't it you say oh here's a here's an action point here's something to go and go and work with other people but um i guess it's whether we take our own advice and go and do that ourselves it, it, it's surely in our best interest to go and see how different people operate and get new ideas and that's the only way we're going to develop i guess um brilliant um right i'm going to move on a little bit now to to looking at you know the training and assessment elements of things because i know there'd be a lot of people who are preparing at some point when we get back after all this for, for some assessments. So um, you've got combined years, multiple across all different disciplines. So what are the common, what are some of the common pitfalls that you see when you're delivering assessments? And that could be in the mountains, on the crags, you know, on the water, whatever it might be. What are some of those common pitfalls? Um, um, I'll, I'll offer one um experience experience in the environment having spent enough time getting to know the place in which you're willing to lead others and i'll give you a, a little anecdote in a minute that involves both of you um i think it's i think it's challenging for um aspirant leaders to for example focus on the needs of their group members if they're processing power is mostly taken up with looking after themselves and figuring out what the environment's doing around them that leaves them with relatively little uh, resource to pay attention to how their group members are responding so i would say experience and comfort in the conditions at the level at which you've decided to to lead others and the the little anecdote i'll give you 
um, uh, you and I, Matt, were candidates once on a, a canoe leader assessment. And um, on the second day, Adam was an assessor of ours. We were heading down the River Dee in quite high river levels. And the previous day, uh, one of Adam's colleagues had assessed our abilities on open water, uh, looking after people in canoes. And we, I felt really comfortable and confident on the first day because there was a period in my working life when I, I looked after canoe groups on a lake in North Wales. And I got quite a lot of experience of that. Now, I know rivers pretty well, but I had spent very little time looking after groups in canoes on grade two, grade two plus water. And that was the day that caused me a lot of anxiety because while I knew the environment, I didn't know the boat type very well. And I was terribly nervous that Adam might expose those weaknesses. Um, thankfully, I, I made it through the day with a few positive feedback points from Adam and I came out the other side anyway so that's my anecdote moving on um yeah I I would say well I would have nicked your first quote there um uh Nick which is experience so yeah to totally um experience is important but I would also say um getting to know people is probably the pitfall that people don't make so they they um perhaps don't ask the right questions at the start of the day and they yeah. instead um, instead of rather dealing with the people and the situation they just try to recreate a set piece of oh I've seen it done this way so I'm going to do the same and um, they're unaware that the little kind of things that are different with individuals as opposed to I run this rapid in this particular way or I'm going to set my ropes up on this climb because this is the one that is the easiest one to do at the crag not paying potential uh, particular attention to the fact that you've actually got some really strong rock climbers in the day, so in, in your group that day, and therefore you don't need to start with the easiest route. You could um, maybe use something a little bit harder to start the day with. That's a really good point, and um, I think it links to experience and experience with the right kind of people in that environment. In sea kayaking, I can sometimes see this with assessment candidates that become. Uh, a bit over-reliant on a predetermined plan. They've arrived at the launch beach with a, a, a fairly detailed uh, breakdown of how they're going to lead their group around the various headlands. And sometimes they lean on that plan at the expense of observing the reality around them. And that reality could be a little bit different to the expectation. It could be an environmental change or it could be a change in the way the, the students are responding. Maybe we get to Pemrin Mare and the inner race, which might be considered a, an easier uh, route choice, has got a bit of swell wrapping across it and it looks like the kind of place where a, a swim could occur in amongst the rocks. The middle race, in contrast, could offer some more space. But if their plan has been to go through the inner race to reduce risk and they fail to notice the reality of the situation and the change in the conditions, it leads them into a, a, less, uh, a less appropriate decision, which when they were sitting in their room making their plan, seemed like a good one, but when confronted with reality, it's no longer the best option. And I think that that, 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 that reliance on set pieces, as you, as you said, can sometimes be useful but it's a form of heuristics which work well 
when the heuristic solution, the shortcut, is really appropriate for the situation. It's when there's a slight mismatch that people end up in difficulties because they go for the shortcut solution, but it doesn't quite fit the problem, and then things start to unravel. Yeah, and I, I don't want to expose a can of worms here, but I, I think often that set-piece affair is done because, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but I think some people apply this kind of benchmarking exercise to, well, that's what a five-star panel or an advanced C-cut leader will do, that's what a mountain leader will do, that's the standard of navigation, um, therefore I'll do it that way, and, and miss, the, miss those smaller, finer details, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. It hasn't happened very often, but occasionally I've had people say to me, well, surely the point of the award is to take people into advanced conditions. Well, actually, the point of the award is to look after people, and you might go into advanced conditions for the sake of the assessment we need to, so we need to make sure we've got the right people. But looking after people and being attentive to their responses in that environment is central to the job that we do. Do you, do you think that's as a result, you mentioned experience, is that as a result of, of them not having enough variety of experiences? Or do you, do you think it's just a case of them going, right, like you say, I made, I made a plan, therefore if I don't stick to the plan, then the assessor might go, well, you said you were going to do this, and so your plan must have been bad rather than, actually I'm, I'm adapting on the fly to take account for what's going on yeah yeah I, th I think that um, uh, we need to be careful with seeking to get to know a place so that we just have some set solutions um, I live and work on Anglesey so I get to see certain places a great deal but it's really important that I don't just reach out for a, a standard solution to every situation that I encounter and if I was to offer advice to assessment candidates, I would say that while it can be reassuring to get to know a place, and if you're going to lead a group down a familiar river, that's easier than an unfamiliar river. And if you're going to lead a group through an Anglesey tide race, it kind of helps if you've been there before. But those advantages start to reduce. You get diminishing returns if your preparation for assessment involves going to the same river every time in the hope that that will be the assessment river. Or if you go to Penrymar and the Skerries a dozen times and then you bank on the notion that that's where you'll do your assessment. Uh, the advice I often give to uh, sea kayakers that I meet who are preparing for an assessment is, yeah, you know, come to Anglesey because we get such good conditions but go to Pembrokeshire and see if those see if those ideas and those tactics work in a different venue go up to the west coast of Scotland go to that tidal area south of Oban and go island hopping and run a few tide races up there because then you start to develop generalizable solutions that are adaptable and flexible to the specifics of each situation and I think that a combination of a bit of familiarity uh, with a lot of breadth, a lot of breadth of experience, helps greatly when people are put in challenging situations. Yeah, I'd agree, Nick. And you no, know, I think I, I don't want to use it such a cliche, but you no, know, a lot of the awards will have a sort of minimum number of logbook days. For example, the 
the successful candidates are always the ones that have got double that experience. So if it says 20 mountain or 40 mountain days, those that come with 80 plus always pass nearly all the time without problems. Um, the ones that are kind of in that, oh, I've only just scraped enough. Um, sometimes they do all right, but often it, it's an unsuccessful result. Yeah, it's, and it's about the it's about the quality of that experience as well, isn't it? Because if you if you do if you do eighty days in the mountains where the weather's glorious and and the visibility is amazing and um you know all those things are really positive, well you get you get really good experience of of that condition, don't you? Um, whereas what we're looking for is is that ver- that depth of experience, but making sure we've got variety among that, so that when those when those situations happen that are unexpected, you know we've got that database that we talked about before that we, that we can draw from and go right. I've experienced something similar to that, and that was the result. So therefore, I can make some decisions around that. Yeah, brilliant. Um, were you going to add something else then, Adam? Sorry, did you? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to sort of say. Um, I think one of the things that assessment that's that's often easy enough because often people have come through sort of a training uh, course and therefore they've been exposed to what. A typical day might look like um, but I would say that often at a training courses people perhaps think they've got what is the pre-requirements and then they suddenly realize that actually that's not and the mountaineering is a very good example where people say yeah I've been up 20 mount I think the, for the mountain leader award it's 20 QMDs quality mountain days as a prerequisite for a training course people turn up thinking I've got 20 days in the mountains but they've walked up Snowdon via the five different tracks and that's five different days in the mountains and actually when we get on the training course they realize that it's off a path they've got to navigate or it's in rocky broken terrain that only really encounters you you come across an encounter in the lake district scotland and, and snowdonia and the, your, your days in the brecon beacons or the peak district don't really count it seems to make total sense doesn't it that the, the more breadth we've got then then the better the, the, the more options we've got to choose from do you guys ever uh, I'm sure you have, but experience people on assessment who are trying to deliver an assessment performance rather than just delivering, you know, doing the job, doing the role of a of a leader, but they're just trying to tick the assessment boxes, and that can sometimes be a pitfall that people fall into. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely get people that say, well, "I thought that's what you want me, wanted me to do," um, and I and I'm pretty. There probably has been days where I haven't said it, but I normally always try and say at the start of every assessment I run, just do what you would do if you were just out with a bunch of mates. You know, that's what I want to see you doing. Those are, those are what I'm based my decisions on. Um, just just do your thing. Don't try and second guess. And uh, I normally follow up with, and I want to have a little bit of fun, please. You know, let, let's let's not remember it's not school. We're here to have fun. It's millions of teachers going. What my lessons are always fun. Um, but I think that's something that people, um, you know, talking about other pitfalls, things that I've I've noticed is people who come unprepared, and and by that I mean it could be as simple as, um, yeah, you, I know they they're going for an assessment, and that shouldn't be the be all end all, but but just that preparation of of knowing what to expect, all these whether you're doing your ML, your RCI, whether you're doing a an advanced leader award, whatever it is. All of the information is freely available, isn't it, for people to go and look at? Any and anybody can go and look at the assessment guidance, um, and I think going away and doing a bit of research beforehand, so you come, you know, with a bit of knowledge around the assessment process as well, 
as just doing the doing the role can often be something useful for them. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. You can do a lot of reading around, but I think it comes back to that breadth of experience that Nick just mentioned. But actually working with students and working out working with your mates in those places is where you actually do the learning. So there's a lot to be learned on the internet. Granted, there's some great videos out there. Um, Kayak Centuries have got loads. But um, no, you still you still got to actually go out and, and put the miles in. No, couldn't agree with you more, Adam. Um, couldn't agree with you more. And we've got a question later on from one of our members that kind of links to one of those, one of those subjects. Um, if you could um, offer people some advice you know, on how they're best going to go about gaining this experience. Because we've, we've talked about, you know, multiple times we've said gaining experience is important. So so what's the best way people can go about generating that experience? Yeah, at the risk of um, uh, repeating some stuff that we've already mentioned, um, just go paddling. Get experience of the conditions in which you want to lead. Um, or if you're preparing for another adventure sport assessment, just go and be active in that sport and do as much as, as, as time permits you to. And you just can't learn too much about the environments where you've decided you want to be responsible for others. Uh, I continue to learn stuff about the coastal marine environment, and uh, it helps me with my decision-making. Um, something else I'd say, ask yourself what your motivations are for leading other people in those environments. Because um, it's not for everyone. It's not. It's not a, a requirement that we lead other people. It's not even necessarily a natural continuation of your experience. You can choose to be responsible for others, but you don't have to. So just be honest with yourself about why you're getting into it, um, and how happy you'll be faced with making decisions for people who are looking to you for leadership in challenging situations it's never comfortable i often don't feel, find that it's comfortable and that's with lots of experience so um just be certain that it's it's a process you want to go through and if you do embrace it because there's lots of positives to get from it that's really interesting i i agree with you i think um i often see people that you know and i'm one of these people that jump between different disciplines and it's those people that, you know, if we say that you've got to do double what the logbook says before you turn up for an assessment, um, that's a lot to fit in for people on their days off around a full-time job with with a life. So people find uh, look to shortcuts. And if you've been assessed in a, a, a uh, an adventure sport assessment, often you will say, well, I can transfer that leadership style across to this assessment and those sorts of things. So people try and get away with, with less. Um of those days and there's value in that there is there is merit in it but i think you you hit the nail on the head when you said about ask your question ask yourself why you're doing the assessment you know, and often people say well work are paid for it or i'm here because i want to be able to work in that environment but they don't perhaps understand what that environment looks like and if there's actually a demand for it so they might become a, a an advanced cut leader or a mountain leader but actually they're so busy with their 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 other job their other lifestyle that they, they're never going to work in the mountains or they're never going to actually get a chance to work on the sea. And um, that, that for me, is something that kind of I always have to kind of empathise with people because I've been there myself. But, um, you know, be, be yourself and ask those honest questions. It doesn't always happen, but I get the impression sometimes that people go, right, well, 
I'm going to do this assessment. I've done the training. I've gone away. I've consolidated. I've come and got an assessment. Therefore, I've got the little piece of paper that says that I can go and do it all and I'm I'm not indestructible. But if I've passed, then I, I'm good at what I do. But I often remind people that actually there's a big responsibility to taking on this role as a leader. And, um, you, you know, you could be responsible for taking people on lowland walks with you know groups of primary school kids or you could be taking people in advanced conditions on the sea or the white water or whatever it might be and just passing the assessment it gives you the the ability to go and do that from a insurance point of view and from a deployer employer point of view but actually um it, it, it it's it's nothing else past that because you're only as good as you are on that day aren't you so you, you've got to be happy to then go away and actually do the job with real people in real time where you're fully responsible for looking after them. Absolutely. And uh, just to um, provide a slight counter to that, um, I do I do meet lots of uh, sea kayakers and often their clients who have chosen to follow a leader assessment path for really positive reasons. Um, some of them use it as a goal-setting process uh, in a very positive way. It, it requires them to ask themselves what skill sets they need to have in order to complete the assessments, and then they make a comparison with their, their everyday paddling experiences, and they say, oh, look at that. By way of example, I don't go night paddling very often. Well, I'm going to be assessed on that skill, and it sounds like an interesting and enjoyable thing to do. I'll go night paddling. I'll learn to navigate at night. A lot of people don't fall in much, so they don't get to practice problem solving in dynamic water. But if they're getting ready for an assessment, they can put a training group together and they can practice those skills. And if we forget about the assessment for a moment, they end up feeling that it was a very positive process to work towards that point. And those people that I've just described they uh, they often complete the assessment successfully and they go away with lots of humility and a recognition that their experience as leaders is going to grow from that point. So the process of going through, I don't know, the leader training and assessment, whatever it is, that, that's affording them the opportunity to go and you know work on some areas it's a bit like you say a bit a bit of structure a bit of goal setting towards getting to somewhere that actually means the award means great you know you big smiles come the debrief but that's the, the idea of going and leading people isn't necessarily the main purpose for doing it that's interesting yeah it's something i find interesting because I, I i see that a lot on the sea i come across a lot of those people it happens a little bit on the mountaineering world but I don't see it in white water or canoe or um, or rock climbing half as much. And I would say people there are definitely often there for, for, for work purposes or for professional purposes, less so for a goal-setting benchmarking exercise. It's a stepping stone for uh, you know employment or for, yeah. for getting out with groups. Interesting. I wonder what it is about sea kayaking that, that maybe... You know, I know it's all anecdotal, but maybe makes it a bit more, um, like Nick described it. Mm, interesting. Maybe that's a subject for another podcast. Yeah, yeah oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, oh, now we're talking. So, only a couple more 
questions for you folks um so you know this one's a tough one and i know that maybe you might be able to say it's not actually possible to do but um if you could list i don't know say the top three behaviors or actions that people display on assessment that are successful you know what are some of those things that you see i'd say behaviors or actions not not specifics but you know general things that you see that make successful candidates all right go on i'll 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 jump in um i think that i frequently see from successful candidates a really good uh interactive communication between them and their fellow group members i see concise clear positive and appropriate information that's rooted in good decision making and it's a two-way process um when when a group is moving well and there's a good interaction with the leader communication lies at the heart of it and to labor an earlier point those successful candidates demonstrate familiarity with the environment in which they're leading they read the water they understand the conditions and they make good route choice and positioning decisions that help them to look after the group okay uh, you asked for three i'll give you one more um those people display a care for the well-being of the group members it's not a transactional process where they simply say follow me i'm going to show you a suitable route through this tide race and your job is to follow me that's enough for some people but it's not enough for other group members so what i love to see from uh, from successful candidates on assessment is people who provide support and challenge in a variety of ways according to the situation and the people that are involved so that would be my three top tips awesome i don't i don't want to say follow that adam but follow yeah. that, adam <laughs> yeah can you just like pause rewind about 35 seconds and, and play again because nick's just nailed it hasn't he um yeah oh what do i add to that thanks nick <laughs> I would say, um, yeah, that calm, reassuring voice is, is really important. I, I don't mean that in a purely a voice point of view, but if people are calm and show that they're not frantic, I think it puts everybody at ease. So that's often uh, an appropriate way to, to, to do well with people. Um, God, I'm trying to think now. What else? Um, you might have to come back to me. I've got a bit of a memory blank going on, but... Um, I think I think you've already said you know you've 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 already highlighted some previous answers you know earlier on when you talked about people not not coming with kind of you know stock stock answers and solutions to things that they're they're adaptable and they can they can play around and I guess that's a that's a nice trait because that must mean that they've gone away and developed experience if they can come in and they can be fluid to the situation that's going on. Yeah, and, and um, to follow on, we've probably said it already once before tonight at least, but it's that you're coaching people, so individuals, and, and Nick was quite right there. The, some people want to be challenged, so one brush doesn't suit all. No, we're not all going to go through the same channel or do the, all do the same rock climb. We've got to differentiate and individualise our performances with these individuals, and we can only do that if we, if we have that transaction with them. We actually have that communication going on. Brilliant. That sounds great. I don't. We, I think we've covered all the sort of bases there. Um, I, I guess uh, a subject like this, we can't actually give any right 
and wrong answers to things because it, it's not black and white like that, is it? Um, and there are various shades of grey that we operate in and we have to be able to be flexible and adaptable. And these are all the sort of words that we've mentioned a lot. And I feel like we're repeating a lot of, a lot of words and a lot of phrases, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because they're the, they're the common threads that we see in people who are successful and do, who do a good job when they're leading in the mountains or leading on the sea or, where, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I would say, though, that I think and we're not talking professional awards because they're not professional awards in that sense because some people, as Nick's pointed out, don't do them for that reason. But if you apply, apply a professional mindset to things, um, that helps people out. You know, If people are organised, they arrive on time, their, their kit is, is well-packed and thought about, that normally, as, as we sort of already talked about, takes some pressure from people trying to process things. You know, if you never paddle the set of splits because you've only borrowed them off a mate for the first time on your assessment, then you've got that, oh, do I put one on the front, do I put one on the back, do I put one on the front, one on the back? You know, it's the same thing. Oh, I've, I've got my expedition rucksack on because I thought I needed to bring loads of extra kit. Well, that tells me a lot that you probably haven't been out in the mountains carrying a tent a lot and spent nights in, the, in, the, in, in, in a tent. So, you know, it starts to show me situations. So, yeah, being professional, and I, I think that's in the broadest sense of the word. Nice, love it. Um, great, really enjoying this 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 chat, boys. And um, if you're okay to ask to answer a few more questions, we've got some that have been sent in from our essential members. Now, um, for those of you who are tuning in who are looking for some um mountaineering or climbing or whitewater kayaking, then most of these are sea kayaking related. But I think a lot of the answers that we're going to get are pretty transferable. Um, so if you're happy to answer some quick fire questions from the team, that'd be amazing. Um, so we've got uh, a question from Eleanor, Rachel and Annie. It's a kind of collaborative question because they all ask a similar sort of thing. And, um, their, their question is, what do you do with people who don't respond or ignore some of the instructions that you're giving them? So, uh, I'm wondering whether Eleanor, Rachel and Annie volunteer their services in um, uh, weekend club settings and so on. Um, that needn't be the case, but um, uh, just in case they do, uh, some suggestions. Um, be clear, be clear about how many people you're willing to lead. All right. And um, British Canadian will help us with this. Um, we have maximum numbers that we are permitted to lead, and that's four people in advanced waters and six people in moderate conditions all right above this number once you get above six group cohesion starts to fail and certain personality types will begin to paddle away so group size will have a huge impact on your ability to keep the group together um, so there you go there's one piece of advice secondly have an open and honest conversation with your group before you get on the water about the responsibilities of sticking together. Yeah, Make it a collaborative discussion where everybody buys into the agreement that you're going to do certain things in a particular way on the water. And if you can get your group members to buy into that idea, they're less likely to paddle away. My final thought, if specific group members refuse to stick reasonably together and that notion of staying together can 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 be a little bit adjustable according to conditions if you've got people that are unleadable 
don't paddle with them. Don't paddle with them. Focus on the group and share your concerns with those people when you get your chance. If they don't want to work to a commonly agreed approach, just don't go on the water with them. There you go. I think I've done that one. Can we have another question? There's there's a there's a slight addition um, from from Annie and and she adds that um, if you've got someone in your group who who does paddle off, you know, where do you where do you go with either reining them in or do you focus on the group that you're with and what happens? It I know the th- the suggestions that you made there, Nick, are things that prevent these things happening. But if someone does do that, what what I'm sure he won't mind. We like to call doing a Kirk um, blast off. <laughs> you know, do we do we do we go right? We need to let him go. We need to focus on the group. Or where's the where's the present multiple times? I would say, and you know, often you go, where's this come from? It's a bit of a curveball. Um, normally, if you pull your team together, eventually that person's going to come back and join you, but. There are times when they don't, um, but I would say you've got to have that honest, frank conversation with them because if you don't, it, it could get really serious really fast. Um, I'd like to think that you'd see it coming. So if you've got good observation skills, you can see somebody starting to get a bit of distant. And I, I often find just manoeuvring myself around the team uh, helps. If I start to see somebody that's, you know, if there's four of us having somewhere, Across an open bay, and one person's a little bit far out to my left, I will paddle out towards that person and maybe go on the outside of them and then just shepherd them back into the group and get them in a conversation. Often, you know, I'm pretty good at remembering names and faces, but um, I will often try and ask um, what they're doing for a living or, or what they plan to do at the end of the day, or just almost a pointless question, but it's not pointless because it actually gives them some, something to focus on. And while they're doing that, we're coming back together as a team. But um, you've got to got to see it coming because if they get too far away, it's hard to chase. Um, and yeah, starting to blow whistles and shouting at the top of your head is, is not it's not cool. Yeah, I guess no one all of a sudden ends up fifty meters away, do they? It's not yeah. like the, they were they were next year and then you turned around and all of a sudden they yeah there are there are sorry Matt you, you get it in rocky coastlines where people are in and out of caves. And you no, know, you often get one person that doesn't like going in caves. They would just paddle on the coastline, and you've got two or three people in the back of a zorn. Um, you, you, you know, sometimes you might just say, "Hey, you three, just wait there. I'm going to go and get said person and bring them back to the team." And so, yeah, having a skill set that allows you to go and find them quickly is important. You know, if you're relying on somebody else's skills to kind of fish them out the drink, then that's going to be a struggle as well. Mm, so you, you kind of try and. You were talking about trying to engage with them. It comes yeah. back. It's, it seems like a constant theme throughout the whole this evening. It's and it's a piece of advice I once gave gave someone. It's just just be a good human. And if we're if we're interacting and we're engaging with them, then um, hopefully those things don't happen. And if you've done the right thing at the start, then we're going to prevent stuff rather than cure things, aren't we? All right, great, brilliant. I hope that's uh, answered your question, ladies. Um, we've got one from from Greg now. Adam, he's he specifically aimed this question at you. <laughs> so, well, so, I wonder why that is. So feel free to chip in, Nick. But he's uh, he's yeah. he wants your opinion on this, Adam. He's um, <laughs> uh, hi, Matt. Just checking if Adam has any tips around encouraging people to take on leadership roles, primarily in a club setting, e.g., sea kite leader. 
Um, I feel there's a reluctance to take on leader roles because of the weight of expectation and responsibility that brings. Any top tips on support we can give? Thanks, Greg. Why did you pick me? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's... Um, I want to answer this question in two weeks' time because I think British canoeing are going to uh, help to come up, help to kind of uh, create some solutions to that um, with the with the way the schemes are going. But um, you know we've got to make keep things simple, and and people often um, I don't know get oh, I'm trying to think what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> um, try they try and overcomplicate things, and if you have that goes back to that conversation that Nick just had then was if you have that honest chat with people and say so well, what is it you're trying to do you know we, uh, I. It, it, there's a breakdown in clubs, I feel, when um, the shared goals aren't shared, if that makes sense. So you want a white water weekend, there's there's 15 of you all staying in a bunkhouse and there's 10 of you who want to go off and run a river and uh, five that want to do something else. And of those five, there isn't a driver. So those five then join the other team that want to go off and do a said river. Suddenly we're not on a shared goal. We've got 15 people, but actually only 10 people want to be there. And suddenly, that is a big weight of, and a burden of responsibility to have to sh- to have to carry. And I wouldn't do it. Uh, and I think Nick sort of already answered in the previous question about look at your ratios. You know, the bigger you get, the harder it is. There's there's nothing more I dread than at symposiums where there's there's thirty people and you're all going to the same venue because you just know that somebody's going to get surfed into each other or somebody's going to assume that you're looking after somebody else and they're no, they're not in your group. Um, keep your numbers small make it really explicit about what the goal of the day is all about and then I don't think there's any any big problems with owning that that way of responsibility because you you're less likely to have, have those problems crop up in the first place brilliant I, I know we 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 get a lot of people who work in clubs who come to us for leadership courses Nick don't we so you know what yeah. what what are some of your experiences that you've had in that saying well, I would support what Adam just said about group size. It's really tough to work effectively as a leader if you've got too many people in your group, and especially if they're not aligned in their goals. So, yeah, thanks, Adam. I, I completely agree with that, and I, and I have conversations with my clients about that. Um, so one that I'm going to suggest now has come from discussions with club paddlers that I meet on my courses. And I'm going to encourage existing club leaders to do a bit more mentoring in their clubs. It's very tempting when you're a qualified club leader to feel that you've got to take responsibility for the safety of the day. Well, of course you do, but there's more than one way of doing it. And if you make all the decisions during that day, you'll probably do a great job of keeping the group safe. But what you might not do is empower your assistants to feel that they are a little bit closer to taking on that responsibility for themselves. So what you've got to do, I think, is share your decision-making. Involve involve everybody in it, but definitely involve your assistants. Share your thought processes and create opportunities for the less experienced paddlers who want to gain some leadership experience to lead the group around the corner, to position themselves in a suitable place, to figure out the route choice. And we can call it mentoring. It's just providing opportunities for people so that they don't feel that 
they've got to take one huge step from being a group member to being a leader. Yeah, great, great point, Nick. I really like that. That that's rings true with with what I've witnessed and, and, and heard about. Um, and I, I think one more sort of maybe final piece of advice I'd say would be um, this kind of. Uh, I've lost my train of thought. Damn it. <laughs> um, I was going to say it was kind of that um, as as clubs thinking about. Um, those personal skills, it's often the personal skills that make people nervous. So if you think you've got to fish somebody out of a tricky rapid at, at the tail end of a tail race and you're not nervous to whether you, you're nervous to whether your role is going to work or whether you've got the skills to, to get your toe line on the people and move them out of the water, that creates an element of nervousness. And that often means people don't want to, people aren't exactly interested in stepping forward. So, um, to answer your question, Greg, what, what, why is that? I think it's often yeah, weak personal skills. Um, they only get better by going paddling lots. Um, well, one of the ways of getting better is, is going paddling lots, I guess. Brilliant. Hopefully that answers your question, Greg. Um, and then we've got uh, two more people who've asked some questions, and they've asked a lot. So um, we're not going to cover them all. Um, but um, Susan's asked a few questions, and I'm going to go with a, an easier one first is what are, what are some of the most common reasons why people fail assessments? And she's particularly wanting to know about advanced leader sea kayak assessments. Oh, right. I'll, I'll jump in since I've been involved with that world for a while now. Um, and you know what? We've already talked about this. So this will be a fairly short answer, Susan, because a lot of the answers are contained within the podcast already experience in conditions experience in conditions so if you're going to go for an advanced leader assessment uh, we are going to be seeking uh, water conditions that represent that remit and we know that in sea kayaking the advanced environment covers a very wide range of possible experiences we could be in a very remote location we could be leading a group around Cape Wrath, but we could be enjoying pretty benign conditions. There's still an awful lot of decision-making challenges for the leader, but the boat handling skills are well within everybody's ability. So what I would say is for anybody looking to go to do an advanced leader assessment is get comfortable in conditions that represent the advanced remit. All right? Um... Other common reasons for uh, for not succeeding at the assessments: problem-solving skills, problem-solving skills um, in challenging environments, tide races, rock gardens, surf, and so on. Uh, we we need to have sufficient experience to be able to identify solutions that are going to work in those situations. And I would encourage anybody going for an assessment at Advanced Leader to practice those. Get a training group together, get three or four like-minded people who want to practice these skills and work on them because they don't tend to crop up when you're doing a good job of looking after your, your fellow paddlers. Okay. Um, I've got one I'm going to add to that. And that that's It's a problem-solving skill, but I think it's the role that... The, most assessments that you come across, the conversation is often 
there was somebody on that assessment that hasn't got the perfect role or a bit of an iffy one or they got a sore shoulder don't leave yourself open to that be fully prepared to be able to kind of get yourself upright from a cap size in conditions um if you if you're not feeling confident in that don't put the assessment in the first place because it will get tested and it just adds that element of psych- psychological unease, unease if you're not happy about your role and knowing that it's going to definitely work do you do you notice you know some of those things that Nick was talking about then Adam I know it's kind of off the off the the question but do you notice some of those things when you're assessing people in advanced white water environments are they are they very similar things are these common yeah, yeah, things yeah, that we yeah, face yeah. In, in advanced environments yeah 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 totally it's all all, all transferable without a doubt brilliant excellent um the the other one of the other ones she's asked um is and I don't know whether this tell me if it, if it's a no, but she's asked what what are some of the the common trip planning fails? A positive exercise I would encourage everybody to do is to obtain the relevant information before you go for a paddle, and then to take some time to not only make a plan, but to build a clear picture of expected conditions at different stages of the journey at different points in the day and to challenge yourself to create as as detailed a picture as you can of what you think you're going to encounter when you get to that headland at that particular time. Then get out there and compare your expectations with reality. Be flexible because your plan is only your plan. And since Susan asked the question, it's really important that your plan remains flexible in the light of developments, which we talked about earlier in the podcast. Brilliant. Perfect. Hopefully that answers those questions for you, Susan. And finally, we've got some questions from Nikolai. And Mm -hmm. um, let's have a look. So he wants tips for prefer... Oh, okay. This is a really relevant one for him, and I guess we'll explore why in a moment. But tips for preparing for the um, advanced leader assessment when you live in an area without a rocky coastline or strong tidal streams. And I guess you know Nikolai pretty well, Nick, so you can maybe explain to everyone why he's asking this question. Well, he and I have paddled together a a few times and Nikolai's got strong technical skills and he's got a lot of leadership experience in his club in Denmark. And he's got a a lot of attributes that are going to help him greatly in an advanced leader assessment so Nikolai I'll talk to you now (laughs) let's not talk about you um yeah this is a tough one it's a tough one mate because you live in a in a a country with a specific set of conditions which don't necessarily match what we face as UK sea kayakers and what you're going to need to build on your existing skills is experience Now, I'm going to answer this in two ways. So let's consider some things you can do in your home waters. All right. You've got a couple of places in Denmark which are of high quality. All right. The area between Silt on the German-Danish border and Esbjerg to the north. You've got the islands of Rømu and Fena. And you've got some pretty challenging environments there. It's tidal. Yes, it's low and sandy, but you've got navigation challenges. And if you've got an onshore wind, you've got sea conditions, which effectively create no landing zones. And I would encourage you to get down there as often as you can with people who want to be led and paddle the area between Silt 
an SBA. All right. I would also encourage you to take the, take the ferry to Sweden and southern Norway every now and then and go and paddle in their rocky environments. There's no tides, but you're dealing with rocky coastlines. And if it's windy, you're dealing with situations that are comparable in some ways to what we encounter. All right. That leaves you with an element that you're not going to get experience of in Denmark or in the rest of Scandinavia. So what you're going to need to do is come over to the UK, by example, and go and paddle in tidal waters. And here's my advice to you. Don't join a course. I'm not looking for business now. I don't want you to book with me as a client. I want you to take independent trips into tidal areas of the UK. Come with your friends, rent some kayaks or bring your own and have your own adventures where you get to make decisions and you get to maximize the benefit of every day. A day on Anglesey where you do a little bit less but you make all your own decisions is far more valuable than a day where you get to spend time with a local guide. All right. So there's some advice to Nicola. It's a really, uh, and you know, in danger of saying, don't, like you say, don't book courses, but it's a very valid point, isn't it? That if we're trying to generate experience, it needs to be our, our own experience that we've created. And, and it's great to go with someone local, but like you say, all the, all the decision-making happens through them and you're just a, a passenger on the ride so yeah making independent trips and going and doing that for yourself is is an amazing way of of generating that experience the deep learning occurs in in my past but also when in in people i work with is always stuff when they go off and have adventures i love to hear the stories that didn't go well or the time they got the tide wrong or the time they forgot that really crucial bit of kit because that's where that's really powerful that's where the learning happens um if you hang out with guys or with coaches a little too much that often doesn't doesn't occur because it's, it's preempted um i find it frustrating when i say to somebody right it's raining now it's got waterproofs on and they go oh i haven't got them you know but i've always got a fix for it i can change the plan and go right well we'll start walking back downhill or we'll go on to the windward side of the mountain um if you're out and you haven't got your waterproofs you own that decision and you will remember that for far more for far, for a longer period of time than i would if i just said oh well, we're going to go to the windward side some days i won't point out why i'm going to the windward side i'm just going to go there because i'm going to get out of the wind and, and deal with it other times i'll go you're a plonker we're going here because of you shortened my day but no it doesn't always go down too well i get people upset when i do that no but the point you're making is is have those experiences and generate your own learning otherwise it's it, yeah go, go and make mistakes it ain't gonna do you any well hopefully it won't do you too much harm yeah yeah it's about it's about knowing why to do it and that's if that's based on the concrete experience that makes it a, a better learn experience than oh i did it because adam told me when it's windy i go to i go to that side because it yeah. because yeah. he said so it's about well i did this three times and i kept getting blown over so i went that side and no funny old thing it, i was more protected um Brilliant. That's that's amazing. Um, uh, final question because we've answered his other questions within the episode already. So um, this is one um, that maybe is useful to to people who are out there who who work and deliver on assessments. So any top tips um, for giving feedback results during assessments? So at the end of the assessment, any top tips for giving feedback results 
and he especially <laughs> and I don't want to finish on a on a negative but he especially talks around how to give feedback to people who've not been successful all right well let's be positive here uh, regardless of outcome regardless of outcome uh, tips for good ways of giving feedback and results in an assessment environment oh my word you do realize we're all going to get shot down in flames uh, after this podcast <laughs> Um, so the advice I would give to myself is to be specific and make specific reference to events that have occurred during the assessment. Don't offer judgments that are able to be interpreted according to expectations. There should be concrete events that took place that we can make specific reference to. Um, those events have to be relevant to the skills that we are interested in assessing. All right. So whatever took place, we need to make observations that are relevant to the candidate's performance. Yeah. I, can I jump, jump in there, Nick? Because I want to um, just add to that. One of the things I got caught this tip years ago about assessing people, and it's if you're not if 15 minutes has passed and you haven't learned something about the assessment change your tap and what i mean by that is we've got to gather a massive bank of experience at the end of a day or the end of an assessment i want lots of information because my judgment or the assessment judgment is based on a bank of evidence if i've just seen one person that's failed their role once for example um that's really hard to then say well yeah but you, you might have been all right because i you know if you'd have rolled again and it would have been okay if i've seen them roll multiple times five plus ten plus times throughout a day or weekend suddenly i've got a lot more evidence to base my decision on that's great that's great adam i completely agree and i i think i would call that consistency what we're what we're trying to establish is whether uh, a candidate's performance is representative of their true ability and the only way we can do that is to give that person multiple chances to perform the same skill I often explain to my candidates that when we do a night navigation exercise, there's every chance that they're going to fix their position about eight times in the night. doesn't matter who's leading each leg. They'll all get to tell us where they are. And at first, that can sound quite stressful, but it's a lot less stressful than only getting two opportunities to do it. Because if you get to fix your position eight times, and you, you, you're pretty good six out of eight, and then there's two occasions when you need to kind of figure it out. Well, we can work with that information, and we can figure out whether you're at the standard or not. If we only give you two chances, then it's a gamble for you, and it's a gamble for us. So I would say, Nikolai, structure your assessments, as Adam has just said, to collect lots of information, and then you can establish consistency. My final point would be, Let's just make sure the feedback we give is positive. Let's focus on what changes we can we can make to improve performance. So it's one thing for an assessor to identify a gap. It would be really good as an assessor if you can say, and hey, here's what you can do to take your performance to the next level. So when you come back, it's going to be a happy outcome. Brilliant. Well, to debrief this podcast, I want to say thank you to both of you. I, I think... The, the conversations that we've had this evening have been been really good and I've really enjoyed listening to both your different perspectives on 
different environments that you work in. And I know we work a lot together and we talk a lot. So it's great to to have this little bit of collaboration between us. Um, and I know that the people listening at home um, are hopefully going to get as much out of it as I've got from, from us having this chat. So thank you very much for both of you for joining us this evening. So that's it, our very first podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we did and it's given you some food for thought. If you've enjoyed the show, why not take a look at our Essential Members program? For only £3.60 a month, you get exclusive access to a huge range of videos, articles and webinars covering technical skills, leadership principles and coaching issues from the world of paddle sports with many topics easily transferred to other adventure sports. We think it's amazing value, so come and check it out. Remember, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, have fun and stay safe.